0: Okay, guys, uh, back to our series on uh, peacemaking, conflict, conflict resolution. This is lesson number seven. Uh, I mentioned that we're going to try to, hopefully next week, kind of pull everything together uh, that we've uh, talked about so far in a real compact way. So you, hopefully by that point, it will be just stick in your mind of how to how to walk through a conflict, sort of step-by-step, what to do before the conflict even happens, and then when it does happen, how to begin to sort things out. Uh, We'll try to pull all that together, and then I mentioned the last two Sundays of uh, August, I want to spend one of those Sundays talking about preference issues and conscience issues, because this is where a lot of the conflict resides among believers. It's just We're just different, and we have different preferences, and sometimes our preferences... We treat them as if they're more important than like doctrine, (laughs) and so we we miscategorize them, or we take personal convictions and we try to impose our personal convictions uh, on other believers, and then we judge them because of that. So how do you you figure all that out? Well, we'll talk at least for a Sunday about that, and then hopefully the last Sunday uh, of the month we'll have some time for Q&A just to, I'm sure, you know, we're going to miss a lot of things. I mean, it's hard to squeeze all this in, uh, but if there are specific questions, we'll well, we'll try to address those. Um, so, so far, we've looked at, you know, attitudes. I mean, the things that we ought to be cultivating in our hearts. Like I said, even before the conflicts uh, come, we've t- we've defined what conflict is. We've looked at various causes of conflict. Anything from just God-given diversity that leads to natural differences. Just the fact that God made us different. We're we're different members. We have different gifts, uh, different concerns. Sometimes it's just simple misunderstandings. Uh, Sometimes it is this issue of man-made preferences uh, that cause conflicts. There's authority issues. Conflict isn't always a consequence of just people in the body of Christ not getting along. Sometimes it's a failure on the part of authority. Uh, Spiritual leadership, and then not just in the church, but even down to family life. I mean, failure in the home, failure in the workplace, where God has put people in a place of authority, but they're not really using their authority uh, in a godly way, and so that leads to problems. Uh, divided allegiances or just loyalties to certain personalities. See that in, the, in the, uh, Paul's communication with the church at Corinth. And most always our or another person's self-exalting pride or self-serving desires or lusts. So those are just some of the things that scriptures give to us as far as what's at the root of, of conflicts. Uh, and relational tension. We've also looked at right and wrong ways to avoid a conflict. Sometimes conflicts can be avoided, Um, but there's some wrong ways to go about that. There's some biblical and God-honoring ways to do that. Uh, We looked at those last time, and then we began to talk about, last Sunday, wrong ways of resolving resolving a conflict once it has sort of started uh, or may have been fully carried out And then we got into sort of then what what is the Bible, what's the biblical way to do this? So what about the biblical way? What what are some God-honoring ways to resolve conflict? And uh, I I, I already mentioned in some cases we can and should overlook an offense. Uh, There is a time for that where we just say, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to just let that go. Uh, I'm not going to go confront this person or reprove this person. I'm just going to let that go. There's a time for that, but that's not always possible. And when that, when that happens, when there is an offense that is too serious to overlook or has damaged our relationship, the Scriptures call us to resolve personal and relational issues through confession, repentance, loving correction, and forgiveness those are the, those are the main pieces so we said we have these various commands in scripture we have one in Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 jesus says if your brother sins go and show him his fault in private if he listens to you you have won your brother which is the principle of dealing with conflict as privately as possible and not through through gossip uh, then we have this statement in Matthew 5, verse 23. Jesus says there, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So we just see the, 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 uh, the priority of making sure that you your relationships in your life are where they need to be, at least from your standpoint, that you're doing all that you can do and not somehow uh, minimize those things and, and convince yourself that this does not affect your relationship with God. It does affect your relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, you come to worship, but take a time out, go deal with, go deal with that, and then come, right? So he's just, he's just heightening the, 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 the importance of this. Um, and, and again, this is sort of the, a, a similar truth from the opposite side, so this is from the perspective of the person who has sinned, so someone has something against you. Uh, but in both scenarios, whether it's you who have sinned or whether it's this other person that has sinned, the command in both cases is to go, but not to sit back and, and wait. Not to sit back and, and wait for them to come, but to, to go and to seek reconciliation. Uh, and we said that there's also this other principle of uh, getting the log out of your own eye, uh, which is so often neglected um, and is one of the greatest challenges, I think, of, of peacemaking. Jesus spells this out in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the point here is that sin is blinding. Um, in fact, one of the one of the words for pride in the New Testament has this idea of of having your head sort of in the clouds, <laughs> like like because that's what what pride does. There's a there's a there's a self deception that takes place when we have pride in our lives that we just don't see things the way that they really are, and we often struggle to see our own see our own pride, see our own sin, um, and so Jesus is saying that in the midst of conflict, it's easy to get these things confused because specs can often look like logs. Logs can sometimes look like specs, And Jesus is teaching that in order to see things clearly, that we need to begin by dealing with ourselves first. Now, I would say even if, even if you are pretty confident that someone did something against you and it seems pretty straightforward that they did this, they picked the fight. You didn't respond in anger. You didn't lash out. It's still good to stop and think about this, right? I mean, even if you think initially, I haven't done anything to cause this, it's still good to pray about these things and to search the scriptures and to search your heart, to do as a psalmist, just to ask the Lord, you, you search my heart, right? I mean, there's, there's oftentimes these things that are in our hearts and in our minds that we're, we, don't even, we don't even recognize, so we begin there, uh, begin with examining our own uh, hearts, and we do that, I would say, on there's sort of two kinds of logs, if you will, that we deal with. One of those we mentioned is at the, at, at the level of attitude and desires. So we, we, sometimes we just jump to the behavior, like the words that we spoke or the, or the decision that we made, but a lot of times we, we overlook this issue of just what were we wanting in that moment. You know, what was our perspective? What were our expectations? What was our attitude? Because many times we have a very critical, negative, or overly sensitive attitude uh, that that really causes us to magnify the faults of others uh, while diminishing and sort of downplaying um, those things in our, in our own lives. I think this is what was going on. If you want to turn over to Philippians chapter 4, I think this is likely what was going on in the life of... Two women in the Philippian church uh, were were never told exactly what their conflict was about, but the context of Philippians seems to indicate that their conflict probably had to do with this sort of critical and overly sensitive attitude towards one another. And the advice that Paul gives in chapter 4 presents a, a really helpful pattern for searching our own heart in the midst of conflict. Paul writes there, Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Suntuke, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so you see here Paul just talking about this, this, uh, bringing up this dispute, um, this strained relationship, also uh, calling the church, if you will, to be engaged in this work of mediation and reconciliation. So they were to They were to be engaged in the work of helping these ladies to to live in harmony or to just just literally to have the same mind, to have the same attitude and the values of Christ himself. And the paradigm of how to do that is what Paul sort of then is given to us. He lays this out in verses 4 to 9. And if you could summarize it in one phrase, it would be to set your hope in God. Set your hope in God in God or on God. So what Paul does here is he says he basically takes their focus off of the horizontal and puts it back onto the vertical. Which makes sense because people in conflict usually have very little room for God. They, They get very engrossed in the conflict. Right? They get very focused, they get very zeroed in on this person and spend a lot of energy thinking through the issues and, and 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 in some cases again just trying to get their way and trying to come out on top, but have very little room for God in fact, when you're around them you you will rarely hear hear them talking about resting in the Lord or putting their hope in in the Lord they they are usually consumed with anxiety uh, and and, and, in, and in all of their worry about what the other person is doing, they have very Little room left in their thoughts for the Lord. That, that's why Paul gives so many exhortations here that are related to God. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. He says, The Lord is near. He says, The peace of God will guard your hearts. The, the God of peace be with you. Uh, Paul, Paul is saying essentially, Get your eyes off of yourself. And get your eyes off of the other person and put them back on Christ. This, by the way, builds right back into our principle that God is sovereign over all conflict. So the first first command Paul gives here is rejoice in the Lord. That is because when we are offended by another person, we have a tendency to forget God's kindness. We, We have a tendency to forget God's patience. We have a tendency to forget God's tolerance with us. We forget the 10,000 talents that God has forgiven us. We refer back to our Matthew 18 passage that we, we, we owe a debt. We owed a debt to the Lord that could have never been paid. It would have taken us a 1,000 lifetimes to do that, an, an insurmountable debt. We forget about the joy that's available in the Lord. We forget that no situation is beyond the Lord's help. And it's in remembering God's kindness and patience and grace that we are prepared for this command here in verse 5. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That is to say, don't insist on your own rights, but show courtesy and respect for the integrity of others. Which is followed up with another vertical focus. He says, the Lord is near. This, again, is another reminder of God's sovereignty over the conflict, and it's a call for us to begin to reorient our focus on the Lord and God's agenda, as well as a call for us to see that this conflict is, is not an accident, but it's an assignment. Right, this is an opportunity. Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. And for all the anxiety that comes in in the midst of conflict, Paul tells us to replace that anxiety with prayerful trust in the Lord because the Lord is near. He says there in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, that's important because our hearts are usually filled with fear. So we're struggling in these conflicts. We tend to be consumed with fear. We tend to be consumed with anxiety. We get fearful about the outcome right? I mean, just think of some of the things that we're, we are fearful of when we're in, we're in one of these relationships, right? We're, we're fearful of the outcome. We're fear of, of the consequences, quite honestly. The consequences to the both, both parties involved or the consequence to that particular person or, or maybe a consequence in your own life. We fear in some cases being exposed or humiliated or harmed, right? Because this person might be bringing things at you and so your concern that these things, you know, might uh, uh, be brought out to the surface, that if this person in the conflict doesn't do what they're supposed to do, which is to address these things in private, then that they might say, they might skip a few steps, right? And they might just decide to go public with something. We get concerned about that. We get concerned and fearful about gossip and slander as these things abound. We fear fear that our reputations might be tainted or stained. But what we're called to do is to turn our hearts to the Lord. To give thanks to the Lord for the trial. And to realize that we'll never be able to battle the gossip train. I mean, sometimes you get into these conflicts and so these things start going and you have all these anxieties and you have all these fears and you feel like you're, you're chasing this train, right? Going hundred miles an hour and it's like you just can't catch it. You, feel, you find yourself going out and trying to put out little fires, Right? put out a fire here, put out a fire there, and you just realize it's, you can't. You, you will exhaust yourself trying to do that. So Paul says you take these anxieties and burdens to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. And when we do this, this is what happens. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what happens you take those anxieties and you take those fears and you take those concerns to the lord because you know the lord is near near in the sense that he's right there so it's like it's like having you just it's like saying to someone i just wish i had somebody to talk to <laughs> and christ is standing right there you know like hey if you'd like to talk you know i'd be i'd be glad to listen and it's like we sometimes overlook that most basic fundamental thing right that God is near, and so he's always available. We don't have to wait to get an appointment to go talk to some friend, right? The Lord is there. And the Lord is also near in the sense that God is a God of justice, right? So even if, even if you're in a position in that relationship where you're trying to do the right thing and someone else is not attempting to do the right thing and it does harm you in some way, even in that, you take your anxiety to the Lord because the Lord is near in the sense that the Lord knows and sees everything. He knows what the motives of the heart are. He knows the, the backroom conversations. He knows what the what the end, end is going to be, the result. And God is not going to just flippantly deal with those things, right? He's not going to overlook any details. And so whether it's... It's, it's God being near in the sense of God is a just God and will bring justice and righteousness. Maybe not in our timing and maybe not the way that we want it, but He will ultimately do that. Or maybe it's just the fact that God is near in the sense that God is a God of comfort, <laughs> right? And, and He's a merciful Savior, and, and we need to go to Him. We're commanded to go to Him and to not be just consumed with all those cares, and anxieties. And then, and then Paul urges this, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Because again, conflict can cause us to lose perspective and to see things distorted. Sometimes the faults of others are exaggerated and magnified. But with our focus back on God and His patience with us and His goodness, we are prepared to think on things noble and true and good. So in dealing with the the logs in our eyes, we, we first need to address any critical spirit by getting our eyes back on the Lord. And of the sinful things you will need to examine, sometimes the most difficult to discern will be the sinful desires of your heart which means that if you're going to be a skilled peacemaker, you're going to have to grab hold of the truth that we talked about in James 3 and James 4. You're going to have to understand that conflict comes from the desires that battle in your heart and in the hearts of others. Again, some that are inherently wrong, but many that are not wrong in and of themselves. Martin Luther said this, he says, To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in Him from the heart. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. Whether it's the one true living God or something else. But to whatever you give your heart and to whatever you entrust your being, functionally, that's your God. So that's the idolatry that we've been talking about. And anytime you become excessively preoccupied with something, even a good thing, and you seek to find happiness and security or fulfillment in those things rather than in God, you are guilty of idolatry. And when that idolatry is fueling the conflict, what do you do? Well, you gotta put your finger on it. <laughs> I mean, you you it's you gotta isolate in your in your in your own life, you gotta say, that's an idol right there. I have I have made that an idol. I have, I have an unbiblical expectation about this circumstance or about that person. And so you identify those things and you renounce those desires and you deliberately pursue right worship. Again, all this is about getting... It's a, it it's all, all comes back to getting your focus vertically on God instead of horizontally on what the other person is not giving you that you want or what they are giving you that you don't want because that's where we tend to expend most of our energy is focusing on those things so we deal with the sinful things in our lives at those levels of attitude and desires and then we said we the the other log if you will that we deal with are really just the it's the actions right it's the sinful words it's the sinful conduct Um, so we go beyond attitude and desires and we do have to deal with the choices and the words and the actions. I'm just saying that we need to spend a lot more time searching into the desires and attitudes and not rush past that just to say, well, I shouldn't have said that to you. No, what you should have done its like way before that ever came out of your mouth, there were a lot of things going on in the heart. And you need to be able to identify those things and, and deal with them and repent if, at that level. So all of this is involved with, with examining yourself. Have your words been seasoned with grace? Or have you been grumbling and complaining or slandering and gossiping? Have your words been critical, negative, hurtful, or destructive? Have you exaggerated the truth? Are you handling your God-given responsibilities? Have you been keeping your word? Have you been respect, respecting or rebelling against God-given authority? Are you in some way withholding love from others? Have you been preoccupied with your own desires? Have you been treating others in the same way that you would want them to treat you? And if you've been walking in pride, the most important thing is is for you to talk to the Lord, of course, about your sin, to renounce those things immediately, to repent, but then to replace those things with their godly opposites and seek reconciliation. So, all of this is so critical, so critical to to peacemaking. Because simply restraining your sin is not enough. Simply choosing not to lash out isn't enough. Simply choosing to not withdraw and do your hobbit hole is not enough. Not when you're thinking in your own heart that you're always right. You've got to lay down the sword, you've got to take steps toward the other person, you've got to work hard at trying to understand them rather than always defending your own opinion. You've got to learn to verbalize the the wrong things that you've done and own up to those ruling desires that have wrecked relationships. Uh, And you've got to walk by faith, knowing the Lord is near and that He is by your side. So as you go, you go not just naming those sins, but Not just saying, I'm sorry, but we mentioned at the very end of our time last week, you go seeking forgiveness, right? You don't just go saying, hey, I'm sorry about that or I apologize about that. You go naming those things and then saying, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Now, sometimes I I get asked a question about when when is it appropriate to confess sin to others and when is it not? Uh, It's sort of like the question of when do you go and address another person's sin And when do you choose to overlook it? And I've given you some things to think about uh, about in regard to that idea already. But concerning confession, the general principle is that you confess your sin to others when they are directly affected by it or when you know that they are aware of it. That is to say, I don't think that it's helpful to confess sin to another person when you have not acted out on it. For example, if you have some sort of a judgmental thought about someone, I don't think that it's necessary for you to go and to confess that to them. Um, now, if, if that thought... What I mean by acting out is if it goes beyond simply having a judgmental thought about someone to actually those thoughts leading to gossip about a person or slandering that person or doing something to hurt them, that's a different issue. But I'm saying that when, when, when when your battle with sin is something that is going on within your own heart and you haven't actually acted out on that desire in your heart, I think it's best, and again, this is just a general rule of thumb. I'm not saying that you would never go and confess that, but I'm saying uh, imagine uh, if every time you had a wrong thought <laughs> towards someone, you went to them and said, "I just want you to know that I had, I saw you, and I had this this thought went through my mind, and it was wicked. It was wicked. I mean, you wouldn't believe what I thought about you <laughs> and what." And you wouldn't believe what I hoped would happen to you. I mean, it was just awful. And well, what was it? And then you get into this, you, you don't want to do that, okay? Um, if, 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 if a wife, I mean, do, do wives struggle, right, with following their husbands and respecting their husbands. But every time that a wife has a disrespectful thought, it's not good for her to go to her husband and say, I just want you to know that earlier, I mean, I had the most ungodly disrespectful thought that went through my mind about you. He said, well, well, what was it, you know? And then she tells him, and then 15 minutes later, she goes and says, "I'm sorry, but I just had the most dis- disrespectful." <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, you you don't do that, okay? You you talk about really making a relationship difficult, then then get into the habit of Every time you wrestle with something in your own heart and mind, go tell the other person. Okay. Again, you got to be aware that this thing can be working itself out in, in actions right, and, and in words and those things. And so you need to be sensitive to that. But I'm just saying, I don't think that we're responsible to repent and to confess at that level. And I'm not saying don't repent and confess to the Lord. Right. I mean, you still are taking those things to the Lord all the time. But I don't think that it's necessary to actually confess those things to the other person. Same thing with husbands. Right. I mean, a husband has a lustful thought. Um, I don't think that it's necessary or helpful to confess for that husband to confess that to his wife. Quite honestly, that could be very discouraging for a lot of wives. If every time her husband struggled with that, for for some husbands in in our church, it would be a daily confession. That'd be very hard for a wife to to handle that, to hear every single day a confession from her husband that he continues to struggle and battle with that. So again, uh, if it goes beyond that, if it goes beyond an internal struggle and it turns into a wife nagging her husband or for the husband viewing pornography or saying something demeaning to his wife, that's, that's different. So if the battle resides in, say, if it resides in the inner man, you confess those things to the Lord and only confess sin to others when you become aware that they have something against you or in some cases when it's possible that they may in the future find out about your sin and you believe it would be wiser to tell them now then wait for them to find out about it some other way down the road. For example, when we get into premarital counseling, right? And we have individuals that are dating one another, we will tell them, you know, if you're dating someone and there's something in your past, some some maybe perhaps a sexual sin, some bad financial decision or debt, some sort of alcohol or drug addiction or, or some other kind of life entangling sin, it may be wise to make that known to this person. That you could become engaged to and marry, and so again, I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying, I mean, hopefully that person's carried that to the Lord. I mean, they're, they say, "Well, I've already con- that happened ten years ago, and the Lord forgave me." I totally agree. <laughs> I mean, if you confessed it, God forgives. I'm just saying you have to think about the implications of that if you get married and then five years later they find something out about that. You have to weigh that out and what's the wisest thing to do. Um, So it'd be good in those situations to seek counsel uh, of maybe a married or more mature believer about how to do that um, and only give that person enough detail to understand the nature of the sin, what it was and when it happened in your life, but not all the details, right? You don't have to unload a book of details about it, but you say, you know, 10 years ago I did this. You know, and name it. Use biblical terminology. You know, I committed this particular sin, um, but don't feel like that you have to give all of the the details. They may want some, and there might be some that are appropriate. Um, but if if that person just is just, I got to know more. I got to know more. I got to know more details. More details. More details. Then I would tell that person, what is the purpose of you getting all those details? Right? So, what, what, where are you going with this? Because I don't know that all those details are, are going to really help you in the end. So, don't fall into the trap of going lo- along with the world's thinking on this that whatever they don't know can't hurt them. Right? For Christians, living in the light, right? Living in the light, a life of honesty and vulnerability and transparency is the higher calling that we're called to live as we follow in the ways of Jesus. So this is the biblical pattern. You deal with your own log first, stating your desire for forgiveness in a question form, because forgiveness is something that you must receive from this other person. So will you forgive me? Use biblical terminology to describe your attitudes and actions or words that have caused the offense. State the things that you should have done, that you should have exhibited in place of the sin and that you're going to begin to work on accepting consequences in, in, in some cases for your sin, making necessary restitution, and then altering your attitudes and actions with, and relationship patterns to line up with the standards given to us in, in the Bible. Only then are you ready to deal with the other person. So all of this, folks, is just getting ready to go and to show a brother his fault, right? So all this attitudes, perspectives, that all that work. And again, I'm not saying you have to spend months doing this. I mean, this could all take place in a day. But you've got to carve out some time to examine your heart and to make sure that you have got the facts straight, that you haven't rushed into something, that you haven't jumped to a conclusion, examining your own motives, really thinking carefully about how to approach this other person So that it's effective, so that it accomplishes what it's intended to accomplish, so that you don't rush into something and make it worse because of your sinful attitude or because you thought that you knew what was going on, but you didn't have all the information. And so you're rushing in to try to help somebody to do eye surgery, right? I mean, you're rushing in, hey, help, let me help, Mike, let me help you get that thing out of your eye. And it's obvious that I I got problems. Right. That's just not going to end to end well. So you do all this stuff. And again, it doesn't mean you take weeks and months, but you spend some time, adequate time, examining your own life, dealing with your own logs. And then you go, not for the purpose of asking for forgiveness, but for the purpose of helping a brother or sister to deal with something in their life. Now, the basis for that and the method for how to do that is given to us in n- numerous passages. Okay, So what we're going to try to do today and next week, and we'll, like I said, we'll bring it all together next week. We'll just have to pick a stopping point this morning. But you, it, I'm trying to take a lot of different, I get it, a lot of different passages, a lot of different contexts, right? Because we're going to be sort of parachuting in. Okay, what does Paul say to the Thessalonians, and then what does he say over here to the Galatians? And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that we're doing that. We're just trying to really boil down the principles, and then we're trying to tie these things together so that we actually have a template, if you will, to say, again, how do I resolve this conflict? I do this, and then I examine this, and then I do that, and then I go. But then how do I go, and what do I say, and what am I really addressing, and what's the purpose of all this anyway? We're going to try to tie all of this together in the end. But let's just start to look at some of these passages. and We're just going to hit different ones, and then we'll come back and tie them together. Let's start with Mark 11. Mark 11:25. 25 Answers the question for us, what do we do when someone sins against us? What do we do when someone sins against us? And the answer is, we forgive. We forgive. Jesus says this there. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Okay, is that broad enough for us? If you have anything against anyone, you're like, but Joel, you just don't... No, no, don't go there. But you just... No, right? Anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. What that means, folks, is that when you choose to not forgive you are inviting God's chastening hand into your life. Because if you are a child of God, Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. And God has commanded us to forgive in light of the fact that God has forgiven us. And when we choose to not do that and we dig our heels in and say, I'm not going to forgive that person, then what you just did is set in motion (laughs) this purpose of God to discipline you as his son or, or as his daughter, to chasten you because of your disobedience. He loves you, right? I mean, he's not kicking you out of his family, right? I mean, in fact, the very fact that he says, your father, right? In other words, there's the, the assumption here is that you are a child of God, but he's just saying, if you want the Lord to forgive you, and he's, he's just saying, if you want to walk in fellowship with God, it makes it's very similar to that Matthew 5 passage, just saying, if you want to walk with the Lord, you must forgive. You cannot hold on to these things and fail to forgive and, and then convince yourself that you're okay with your father. can't do that. So here, Jesus is simply saying that when someone offends you and they sin against you, you settle the matter in your heart right then and there. You just settle it. I forgive them. Now, when we, when we look at forgiveness in the New Testament and how the Bible sort of presents this to us, there are, we might say there are two aspects of forgiveness. Initially, we would say forgiveness is an attitude that we cultivate in our hearts. But then behind that, there's this secondary aspect, and that is the fact that forgiveness is also an action that transpires in relationship. But that we don't actually extend as an action until a person confesses their wrongdoing. So this particular passage is stressing, I think, the attitude to say that when you're sinned against, In your own heart, you just say, I forgive them. But then later when that individual comes or if they come and they say, will you forgive me, you don't say, I already did that. What you say is, yes, I forgive you. Because it's both. It's both an attitude that you practice initially and honestly, whether the person comes and ever repents or not, right? So whether they come and repent or they ever confess or own up to what they did, you still have to cultivate that attitude. And yet forgiveness is also an action that is extended in the actual relationship itself when a person acknowledges their sin and seeks forgiveness. It's sort of like the difference between, we use this, these, these theological terms and even in our relationship with, with, with our God, we say that there is a judicial forgiveness and there's a parental forgiveness. And what we mean by that is that when a person for the first time repents of their sinfulness, right? And this is, this is the moment of conversion, right? They admit their sin, I'm some sinful, I need God's mercy, you trust in Christ. What does God do in that moment? He does what? He forgives you of how much of your sin? All of it, right? Past, present, and future. So that theologically we can say that you positionally are in Christ, you stand in the righteousness of Christ, and you're fully accepted in the beloved, right into the family of God. And yet, first John 1 9 says that when you sin, that you're supposed to do what? Confess your sins and that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The emphasis in that text has more to do with the ongoing confession and ongoing repentance and ongoing forgiveness that God extends to you, right? That's, we, that's what we call that parental. So it's like God saying, I forgive you of all your sin, but then there is this reality that if you as a believer and a child of God Are walking in unrepentant sin at any point in your life you know it and I know it your relationship with God is affected by that right you're not walking with him you're not in fellowship with him you're not in communion with him and so there is this thing you must do which is confession to him and when you do that God doesn't say well I already did that now did he already do that he did But it's as if he says, I did, but I do. Because there was something that happened positionally back here, but there's something that happens in the moment, in the relationship, this ongoing confession and ongoing extension of forgiveness that is contingent upon confession and repentance. God does not, in that sense, in that parental sense, He does not forgive you in that way apart from your confession and repentance. So it's like, you know, if we, and we say parental because we, this makes sense to us, right? Our kids, if you've got a son or a daughter, that never changes, right? As a parent, you're like, they're my kids, you know? But they do things sometimes that require them to come because they know that they have sinned against us in a, such a way that it's affected the relationship. And they come and they say, will you forgive me? And we say, yes, I forgive you, right? So there's both of these aspects. So when someone offends us or hurts us or sins against us, at the very beginning in our hearts, we commit to the Lord not to stew over it, not to gossip about it, and not to bring this thing up in the future to to use it as, as some sort of a weapon against them. All that's going on right here in our hearts, and that is what allows us to move in as an instrument of grace as we lay aside our right to judge. So again, what it does for us, by doing that in our own hearts in an an attitudinal way, what that does is it gives us the right posture to actually go in and do something constructive with this person. Because if we withhold that and we try to go in and help this person again, it's, it's as if we're going in as the judge to render a judgment. And so we... Forgive them in attitude, and then if they receive that reproof and if they repent and confess, then certainly we would follow through and in our action extend forgiveness. But this is sort of that initial step. Now, we've already talked about Proverbs 19.11 and when it's appropriate to overlook an offense. Again, Proverbs nineteen eleven. in case you weren't here with us. So, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So we say there are time, there's a time and a place for that. But when that's not a wise option, again, you have to go. And so we go back to this Matthew 18, verse 15 passage. It says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now again, we're, we're sort of focusing in a little bit here on Christian-to-Christian Christian relationships. But Jesus says, if your brother sins, you, you go and show him his fault. And this term, show his fault, is really one word in the Greek. It just simply means to reprove or to by conviction to bring something to light to ex or you might say you could even say to expose generally with a suggestion of of even shame of the person who's convicted by these things and so it's it's there's a lot going on there i'm just saying when you're go you're you're going not hammering them uh, not putting your finger in their face it's more of like i like to think of it as, as if you're coming alongside of them and saying can i show you something you think about the way that the Nathan, uh, Nathan in the Old Testament approached King David about David's sin. He didn't just start out saying, you're the man. He could have, right? He could have just said, brother, you're, you're in sin. But what did he do? Nathan comes to King David and he tells him a story. <laughs> And, and he gets David sort of on board with this. And so David's like, well, this is the way I see that. And this is what I would do. And then he tells him, oh, by the way, that man in that story, that was you. You're the man. And so it's this wise way of sort of coming alongside of someone, especially when you, when you see the blindness, when you see the hard-heartedness, when you, when you see, and you're just like, this is probably not going to go well especially when you feel like that that there's a good chance that you're going to be met with a lot of opposition and resistance we have a there's a lot of creative ways to go at this and to come alongside of someone and say can I can I show you something and so you, it's it's like it's like you're describing something to them but in the end it's it's kind of being tied back to that this is what's going on in their life right so it's just a it's just a winsome there's just a winsome way to do this now, it also tells us here when to do this, right? We do it when they have sinned. It doesn't say when you don't have the same viewpoint as them or when you have a different preference than them or you have a different personal conviction than they do. It's saying this has got to be, I mean, folks, this has got to be black and white. Okay? If you go and you try to confront someone on an issue that is not black and white in Scripture, again, you're in, you're in for, a, for a mess. You're in for a mess. Because behind that is a a judgmentalism. Behind that is a self-righteousness. That your way is the right way. So you're not looking at sort of an objective standard of, of, of what Scripture says is wrong and right. It's as if you've created your own standard and you're holding this person to it. And so you're going to go in there and I'm just telling you, the hypocrisy is going to be so glaring to that person. So you go when they have sinned, and then how do you do this? He tells us in private. The ESV says this, between you and Him alone. That's literally the way it's, it's written. Between you and Him alone. And why do we do this? Well, we do this out of love. We do it out of love because our Heavenly Father reproves His own children, and we know that He loves them. The Lord Jesus reproves the church. He actually uses the same word for this over in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Why did Jesus reprove the church in Revelation 3? He did it because He loves the church. There is no question in our minds that Jesus loves the church. And yet that passage tells us that Jesus reproved the church. So reproving and correction is not, a, does, is not an unloving thing. In, 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 the, in, in the right situation, right, it's the most loving thing that we can do. The Spirit Himself in John 16:8 reproves the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when we fulfill this ministry, we do it for the same purpose. Uh, Luke chapter 17, if you want to turn there, well, this will be our last one. Luke 17 verse three. Jesus says, "Be on your guard if your brother sins." Again, it's got to be sin if your brother sins, rebuke him, which is actually a term for warning. In some cases, even it's used in the sense of commanding someone or even scolding someone. But we have to guard our attitudes. So he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. See see the difference there? Because here he's saying... If he repents, then forgive him. So this is more of that second aspect of forgiveness, which is the transactional piece. So there's the attitude, I forgive, right? But then in relationship, you go and reprove someone, and the text says there's this condition. If he repents, then you forgive. And then notice verse 4. Wow. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. So again, there's this ongoing, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. <laughs> if he comes seven times in the same day and he says... Now, let's just be honest, folks. Okay, If, the, if a person came to you seven times in the same day and said... I'm sorry I lied, I lied about you. And you say, okay, I, I, I forg- first time, I forgive you. I love you. An hour later, hey, I, I'm sorry, but I just was on the phone with someone and I lied about you again. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. <laughs> Two hours later, hey, I was just talking to my neighbor and I lied again. Would you forgive me? You know what I'm saying? It's like, so what's going through your mind? Are they, what? Are they genuine? Okay. But what does the text tell us? The text tells us that if he does this, and notice it doesn't say if he repents. Initially, it says if he repents, forgive him. But then it goes on in verse four and says, if he returns to you saying, I repent, forgive him. And this is why I think this is so important. Because one of the struggles we have with forgiveness sometimes is that we question the sincerity of the person. And so a person will say, well, Joel, I mean, I I hear what you're saying. I know that I need to forgive them. But how do I know if they're repentant? And I say, it doesn't matter. Yet. (laughs) Don't let Your fear and uncertainty about their repentance keep you from being forgiving. Now, if they continue in sin, repeating these things, is there a problem? There's a problem. And that trust in the relationship, will it ever be built back if that person continues to sin? It's not going to be built back. I mean, if a person continues to violate these things and sin against this person over and over and over and over again, the trust is, is going to erode. It's going to be nothing. It's, it's, you're never going to strengthen that back to the place that it was. That takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work and effort to build trust back. But from the standpoint of forgiveness, you must forgive. You cannot afford to withhold forgiveness because you have concerns about that person's repentance. Because if you withhold forgiveness, what you do is you put yourself in this position of being the sin policewoman or the sin policeman. And you become hyper... It's like everything is magnified. So you get looking at that person with your magnifying glass and every word, everything they do, you're like... It's either an indication to you that they're, that they're repentant or they're not. And, and eventually what happens is you stop thinking about your own sin, right? There goes the log thing because you, that person gets so focused on that other individual trying to see if they're actually repentant or not. And they're saying, as soon as I see that it's real, I'll forgive them. I'm just telling you, you're never going to forgive them because you're going to be sober, so over-analytical, and so, like I said, it's all by attitude. You're setting yourself up. You're already making the mistake of withholding forgiveness, and so that already, your attitude's already spoiled. Your attitude's already in the wrong place, and so what's gonna happen? Every single time they do the littlest thing, you're gonna say, see I told you, they're not repentant. I told you they're not repentant. So this is really instructive. It's really instructive for us, in that it does describe that other element of when a person comes and they acknowledge what they've done, there is a different way to think about what happens in that moment when you forgive them. That is, that is, There's a distinction between that and what should have happened early on when they first sinned against you and in your attitude said, I forgive them. There is a distinction between those two things, but this also tells us that, folks, we got to err on the side of forgiveness. I mean, <laughs> you might be thinking in your heart, but I just don't know if they're sincere. But what if, what if they hurt me again? What if they do that again? That's okay. Forgive them. If they say they repent, forgive them. And then the building the trust thing and the fruits of repentance and all that stuff, that's all important too, right? I mean, it's not as if we're not looking for that. It's not as if that's not tied to what's going on. I'm just saying in that moment, We have to err on the side of being forgiving people. And we do it because of the mercy and the kindness that God has shown to us. So we'll come back. We'll look at 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul talks about a man in the church that had been uh, reproved and disciplined and yet he was repentant and how the church was responding to that. Of course, Galatians 6 is an important passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Hebrews chapter 12. There's a lot to say about this ministry of correction and then what to do when a person doesn't receive these things. They don't repent. How do you deal with that? And the Scriptures give us even very, very, very detailed wisdom on how to even relate in those situations. So we'll come back. We'll try to work through those remaining passages. And again, we'll try to pull it all together Uh, so that it'll be hopefully firmly fixed in your mind, and then we'll talk, spend a Sunday, conscience issues, and hopefully our final week together give you an opportunity to ask some some questions about things we might not have had time to, to address. Okay, folks? All right, thanks for your time.